G'day everyone and welcome to The Dan Show on Slice Radio. It's episode number 25 and I've got the quarter century up. While I'm celebrating, it'd be wrong of me not to mention the other Slice Radio family podcasts. This week on Her Story podcast for Slice Radio, Ashley talks to singer-songwriter Clancy Pye. Clancy's a local legend around here and you're going to want to hear what she's been up to. The irrepressible DJ Charlie Fat is going to be giving you more 90s hits and memories. Some of them are rare, very rare. You need to listen. Sounds like Teen Spirit with DJ Charlie Fat. The most recent episode of The Shift podcast with Denise Mills featured Catherine Rains. She's a counsellor and artist and it's a tremendous chat. Get stuck into that one. All the information on the Slice Radio podcasts and programming can be found at sliceradio.com.au. But on this show today, we have two fantastic guests. First up is iconic comedian and comedic performer Tim Ferguson. From the Doug Anthony All-Stars and beyond, he's done the lot. Then there's a catch-up with my old pal Don Moore from the Two Dimension Comic Book Podcast. We play that on Slice Radio at 10pm on Monday nights. It's a super fun comic book time. Now hold on to your hats for comedian Tim Ferguson, followed by Don Moore. When I'm thinking about iconic comedy Tims, names come to me. I think of Tim Vine. I think of Tim from The Office. I think of Tim the Enchanter. He's a big one and a tall one. Tim Brooke Taylor, of course. Tim. Yeah. Yeah, some call him Tim. But, of course, who sits atop the tree is, of course, Tim Shaw, the Demtel guy. <laughs> but oh, right under that. Awesome. But right under yeah. that, <laughs> I'm joking, amazing. of course, is uh, Tim Ferguson. A lot of us have grown up with him. Uh, I haven't grown all the way up yet. But, Tim Ferguson, um, thanks for coming on. Hey, uh, thanks for the interruption <laughs> that I uh, interrupted. But it's uh, great to be here. Hello to all of your slicing listeners. Why are some people just funny? Well, I'll just I'll just throw you know uh, questions at you. Why are some Why are oh. some people funny? Is it their confidence or is it something else? Well, it depends when they're funny. Some people are funny, like you know, when you're at a party or you're sitting around having dinner. You know, people who are funny are better at telling stories, and you know, this I don't know, they wiggle their eyebrows in just the right way. And there are other people who are funny on stage and they're kind of two very different arenas. One is, you know, pretty low pressure where the chance of getting laid is, you know, you've got a reasonably good chance after a party or dinner party of getting laid if you've been amusing. Whereas if you've been funny on stage, your chances of getting laid are really 90% unless you screw it up because... It's a different needle to thread. So some people, yeah, do it naturally because they're more gregarious, more outspoken, more retroverted, so they're useful at dinner parties. Those skills aren't really useful when you're doing stand-up. Different bunch of skills are required. So there's my already complex and difficult answer. You do a pretty simple question, Dan. No, that's good. I love that. I didn't know what you were going to say, and that's good. So stand by. <laughs> it's going to get worse. Getting up on getting up on stage. Um, most people tend to do it when they're drunk. You know that's facts, isn't it? The first time. 
because you hear the story over and over again. I was at an open mic supporting another friend and they were short and someone said, hey, you're sometimes funny, Ken. And next thing you know, I was up on stage telling my story and I was blind drunk and, you, you know, you. but it really takes a lot of hard graft to be a proper comic, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, anybody can be drunk enough to get up on stage and embarrass themselves by not really amusing an audience, but to regularly make an audience spontaneously, involuntarily respond with laughter um, and to do it for, you know, an hour takes skill. And there's only one way to get skill, and that's by doing it again and again and again, like being a dentist or a plumber. Nobody wants to have a plumber turning up to fix their bathroom saying, you know, this is my this is my first job. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but, you know, optimism, I think that's the thing they say, optimism, you know, that's when you reach for the nearest hammer and say, get away from my bathroom. Same thing with your teeth, same thing with anything, and same thing with being a comedian. It's a skill, and you've got to practice it and practice it. Um, some people get lucky, and they have natural skill, and that's useful for about five minutes. And after that, they're going to do what everybody else does, which is work on it. Absolutely. So with the Doug Anthony All-Stars, yourself and Richard and Paul had to go to the UK or did you want to go to the UK? Like money-wise, what was the decision there? Well, we just figured, you know, it would be too difficult. And we guessed... (laughs) that there was nobody doing what we were doing. And it was really, we had no particular plan. We'd spoken, or Richard had called the guy who ran a couple of venues called The Pleasants. I think there were four different rooms at that time. At the moment, there's about a dozen. But he called and said, hi, Mr. Richardson, would we be able to come over? And he said, oh, well, yes, you're quite welcome to come over, but I don't actually have a theatre for you. But come on over. And we sort of went over there and we lived on busking, which, you know, if anybody, if any comedian is listening to you, no matter where they are in their life, I've got to tell you, the streets are wide open. If I hear one more person say, yeah, I'm just waiting for an open mic to come up, and it's really quite difficult, my response is kind of twofold. One is, also, you're supposed to be a rebel, so you're standing in line And the other is you're supposed to be innovative and creative. So where is the nearest venue? It's right outside the freaking door. Mm. What are you waiting for? You're waiting in a queue for someone who's, you know, kindly running an open mic night to pick you, probably because they want to sleep with you. And what if you're not the sort of person anybody wants to sleep with? So that's my little rant. Get out on the street. It worked for the Dugans and the Orsas. It meant we could turn up in Edinburgh with nothing. We didn't even have, we had no plan at all. And by the end of that festival, we were playing in a theatre in prime time with full houses, simply through busking. So get your act together, you whining bastards. Ah, well said. Uh, I've never heard someone uh, put it quite so eloquently. Well, well done. I don't <laughs> care if comedians like me or not. No, it is, it's the wrong end of your career to start worrying. <laughs> well, yeah, and, you know, comedians, you know, if you are a real comedian, you know what I'm about to say, which is, if you can, avoid comedians. They're terrible company, 
and they usually form cliques and only losers form cliques. If you want to get laid, why are you hanging around with a bunch of cock and clit blockers? You know, move off. Be your own person. You'll be more successful socially and you won't be hanging around with a bunch of people who want to kill you if you're funny and who just want to sleep with you if you're not. Avoid comedians. I do. And look at me. <laughs> well, you've certainly done very well for over a long period of time. Um, we don't joke around when we say you're an iconic uh, Aussie comedian. Well, it's funny becoming an icon. You know, that's <laughs> the thing. If you're an iconoclast for long enough, you get called an icon. So it's probably you become the worst thing. You become your own enemy. It's, um, it's funny how comedians, you know, like anything, if you do it for long enough, you end up getting sort of a reflection of respect, which is why I guess, you know, prostitutes, if they do it for long enough, end up being called madam. Yeah, they get a bit of respect in the end or some sort of... Well, yeah, no, it's, it's respect and thank you very much. And <laughs> they, they get treated politely, which uh, um, I'm guessing is not the way it works earlier on in your career. But it's the same thing with comedy. Let's talk about the Comedy Writing Masterclass with Tim Ferguson. This looks fantastic. Over two Sundays, the next one's September 19th and September 26th, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. That's good casual hours. That's very respectable hours. What can people expect if they sign up to this course? It seems like a, a very low fee for all your comedy knowledge. Well, I've lowered the fee mainly because, you know, I try to make it easy for people to get in on it. And, you know, numbers are limited as well because otherwise it gets just too crowded and nobody gets a say. Yeah. But basically I try to explain um, in this two Sundays that are coming up how to create a sitcom or a short funny film or write sketches or anything that's got characters and a funny story, even if it's just short, uh, if you want to write a parody film or a romantic comedy, whatever it might be, um, I kind of tell people the principles of it, how it's different to writing a dramatic story. So it's particularly useful for screenwriters who've tinkered with drama and they want to write something funny. It'll save them a lot of time wandering in the dark. That thing I talked about before with skill, being a stand-up takes skill. Writing a comedy script takes skill. And I will save you two years of wandering in the dark and failing at selling your script or making it funny. A lot of comedy scripts um, start off and a couple of the things are funny. And then by the time you get to page you know, 390, you realize, ah, oh, doesn't have an ending. There's a way to end a comic story. There's a way to start it. There is a way to complicate things for characters. And there's a way to build characters. And the next thing, of course, is there are ways to write things that are funny, funny situations, funny gags, reversals, confirmations. Uh, they all have names. But at the end of the day, if you want to write your own South Park or your own hangover film or your own bridesmaids, 
or your own sketch show, uh, talk to me. I will save you a lot of guesswork and banging your head against a brick wall. Yeah, so character-based comedy, which is something you probably know a lot about. Uh, just coincidentally, I watched again the last episode of The IT Crowd, a show that I loved and you probably, I hope, have some knowledge of. Oh, and, yeah, I uh, love that show. And uh, the last episode, I just... I just prayed that let's not screw don't, Graham, don't screw it up, and tell you what he didn't. I mean, I, I mean, I laughed all the way through just about. But they're really great characters. Uh, I suppose if you were writing that type of thing, you'd go with hard characters. But that sort of comedy that's a bit silly, a little bit real. What, what have you got to say on that sort of stuff? Oh yeah, a sitcom is quite an extraordinary craft. It's uh, it's very demanding. Mm. Like there, the laughs can't let up. You can't do what, you know, say a dramatic film does, which is just wander on and make people feel miserable. You've got to establish your characters immediately. You've got to put them into hot water almost immediately. You've got to keep turning the temperature up. You've got to make them think they've got what they want and then snatch it away. You've got to make them feel they've hit a low point where everything's lost and nobody's listening to them. And then they can have one final grab for what they want. And then you just have to make sure they don't get it. All in 24 minutes. You've got to do it every week. Yeah. <laughs> then they've got to be the same so that every time The Simpsons comes on, he hasn't learned from last week. He hasn't grown. He isn't mm. there being a great parent with with uh, Bart saying, well, Bart, you know, I've really changed after that experience with Mr. Burns <laughs> every week, he starts afresh. And if you're doing a series of, say, sitcom series where you have eight episodes that do have a kind of curve, like, uh, say, The Office, uh, even then, you know, the character uh, David Brent in the British series of The Office you know, even though he completely loses everything, when he does come back in that movie he made about David Brent, the character's still the same. Comic mm. characters, like real people, don't lastingly change. Maybe they learn a bit. They learn not to swear in front of the Queen or whatever yeah. it might be. But at the end of the day, we're all the same kid that we were when we were seven, we might have a few abrasions, a few cuts and a few bits of wisdom to impart, but we're the same kid who was running around in the playground back then. What about and like sitcoms like your, like your joke factory, your friends? Like if you were the seventh person in the friends group, you'd be holding your sides, you'd be laughing your guts out, wouldn't you? Because they're just, everyone is so hilarious all the time. <laughs> they don't laugh. <laughs> they don't laugh, but you'd be laughing, wouldn't you? I mean, I'm just guessing you enjoy that a bit less, but I don't know. I don't know you. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I love uh, Friends. I love all, all the sitcoms that are hugely successful. I have a lot of respect for. Now, a lot of people will go, oh, my God, Big Bang Theory. Oh, Friends. Oh, that thing, Two and a Half Men. Oh, you know, I hate that. And the thing is, you know, I understand why they hate it. It's uh, because comedy is subjective. So some people like Big Bang, love Big Bang Theory and can't stand the IT crowd hmm. or going way back, faulty towers. 
They think, yes, minister is too confusing. But, you know, it's okay for people to like one thing and not another. So long as the reason why they don't like something is because it's successful, because the world is watching. I mean, for example, uh, Big Bang Theory in its third series was being watched by more people on earth who had ever watched anything, including sport and the moon landing. Yeah, you can't argue with the numbers, can you? Uh, not if you're producing, <laughs> uh, but certainly you can sit there and say, you know, if it doesn't make you laugh, it doesn't make you laugh. And if the characters irritate you, well, that's perfectly subjective. But uh, you do, if you want to get into the sitcom writing business, at least take a look at it so you can see how the most successful television show ever made in human history works. And it's really very simple how Big Bang Theory works. You can usually work out the principles underpinning any kind of sitcom uh, fairly quickly, even if it's like Veep, which for a moment there was highly cool. 30 Rock, also very cool. Yeah. If you watch the same episode four or five times in a row, you'll be able to see how it's made. Very so that's cool. what I show people. How is it made? If you want to make your own funny film, you want to make your own hangover, this is how you build your characters. This is how you get them into hot water. This is, you know, if you're going to have a character who's stepping in to help them, you make them like the guy in The Hangover, who's not entirely useful. <laughs> no, that was a good movie, that one movie. This is really interesting just for me, and I, I bet a lot of people say thank you for helping me with this. Pitching documents and, I guess, pitching shows and stuff. It's, uh, it's quite, we've got more streaming outlets than ever, but it's still very hard to, to get something up uh, and going. How, what's your pitch? Yeah, the pitch on pitching, I do teach people pitching, um, which is uh, how to pitch to Americans, how to pitch to Brits, how to pitch to Europe, um, how to sell your ideas in Australia for movies or whatever. There are ways to do it. And, effectively, you just want to keep it simple. Wow. Um, I've heard a lot of pitches, and it, it always dies straight away with two questions. So make sure you have a good answer for this question. The first is, what's it about? And you need, you know, 26 words, basically a log line to say what it's about. Well, it's about a, a police chief who's scared of the water who is beset by a shark that is attacking his island. Aha, uh -huh. what's it really about? Mm -hmm. What is it really about? What is Jaws really about? Now, if you don't know what it's really about, then you are completely lost. Because I guess and it doesn't have legs after that? Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. Uh, and of course, you know, I'm not going to tell you what Jaws is really about. I suggest you watch it and <laughs> work it out for yourself. But it's pretty simple. I haven't seen it for a long time. Well, like, you know, what's uh, Wizard of Oz really about? There's no place like home. Yeah. It's the one idea that you walk out with going, home may be black and white, but at least it's not full of those weird full-color, technicolor witches and, and strange whatever they were called. So it's about teaching people the documents they need, 
how to write the documents, what should be on them, um, and also going through what producers want. Say you've got an idea and you want to say, you make a, I want to make a short film, you've got to find a producer, and a producer with any experience will always know that if they say yes to your idea, Dan, that there goes, if it's a short film, at least six months of their life. And we only get 70 or 80 years to live in. So that's six months of their adult life, which only starts when you're 18. And then you can forget the last 15 because nobody's interested in you. So a good producer knows that if they say yes, it's got to be worth their while. So you want to make it look like it's worth their while. If they say, what's it really about? And you say, well, it's about you. It's about me. It's kind of about the environment, but it's also like volcanoes. What's that about? Not good enough. Also, I hate my mother. Yeah, you've got to know really simply, there's no place like home. We must all learn to swim. Sure. We must all face our fear. There you go. I've said it. Face your fear or you'll be destroyed. That's yours. Well, tell us the easiest way uh, to book a place in the uh, Comedy Writing Masterclass. You go to my website, cheekymonkeycomedy.com. That's cheekymonkeycomedy.com. And if you go to events, you'll be able to find the masterclass there. Or if you just type in, you know, Comedy Screenwriting Masterclass and my name into the Google machine that watches us at all times, um, it will be able to put you in touch. And a special deal just for Slice Radio listeners, if you use the promotion code COMEDY15, COMEDY15, that's all one word, um, that will give you a 15% discount. Tremendous. And it's already kind of cheap and, you know, well, it's $200 cheaper than anybody else will give you. And the other thing is, It's the only course of its kind in Australia. So you might as well get onto it if you're at all interested. Otherwise, all the other people in the course for chicken feed will have overtaken you. And I guarantee this shit works. I teach it at, uh, at VCA, the Screen Academy of Scotland, NYU. I've gone all around the world doing this stuff. It really works. So beg whoever you have to beg and fork out the cash. Yeah, maybe sell some of that vinyl you've been hoarding if you're one of those people. Two other little things to mention. Well, they're not little things. They're big things to me is the Ferguson Report, always hilarious. Thank you so much for doing that. (laughs) (laughs) That's always fun. Every week trying to be funny about politics and sometimes they just write it themselves. So you just (laughs) repeat what they like, Craig Kelly and Clive Palmer. A romance made in heaven. Oh, Clive. What are we going to do with you? Oh, Clive. (laughs) What's he going to do with us? That's the question. Yeah. We are huge Maynard.com.au fans here at at Slice Radio and Bunga Bunga, the podcast with world's greatest broadcaster, Maynard. What could you give us a little line about that? (laughs) Well, Maynard.com.au is just the man is awesome and we just have a lot of fun we only have have one rule with the podcast is it cannot make sense for more than 15 seconds 
so you can get some information across and the rest of the time we're just causing trouble, having fun, you know, setting fire to ourselves. Um, it's called Bunga Bunga and it's on his website. And, of course, the Ferguson report is in the free newspaper, if you like reading the newspaper, you don't like paying for it, um, called thenewdaily.com.au. Thenewdaily.com.au is just, um, yeah, it's free newspaper and it doesn't have, like, The Guardian is free, but it's not always going, oh, well, oh, oh. It doesn't have <laughs> that kind of whiny left-wing kind of thing. I mean, no, I'm left-wing. I, I hate won't. whining about it. <laughs> yeah, you could do yourself. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you very much, and thanks, everyone. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on the show. Not a problem. Let's talk about what's been happening with the podcast because there's been an interesting turn in recent months with two dimension comic book podcast which is up to 304 episodes is that you've been having a lot more creators on right yeah that's um that's been a surprise uh, we've always had a few reach out to us and um they would like to come on the show and it's it's been nice um lately it's just been a barrage uh, as a matter of fact i had to turn a couple away because it seemed like that's all we've been getting uh we'll have them on later uh, most of the show is just a roundtable of the, the four of us, sometimes three or two, just talking about what we read and what we think. But yeah, we've had a lot of creators come on, and um, I, I like the I like a lot of different kinds of work, and I appreciate the fact that everyone we come on is doing something differently. Um, I was really surprised that. Some of these guys, that seem like that's how they earn their living is creating comics, even though I wasn't aware of their work. Yeah, so was I. So was I. I, I, I listened to all of the uh, episode 303, Jason and the Olympians. Now, that's Alex Ogle, right? That young fellow with his latest creation, Jason and the Olympians, he's up to... 4,105 Aussie dollars. That'll be different in the US. Yes. Um, but he's, he's still got, he's still got four and a half thousand to go. So thoughts and prayers go out to <laughs> Alex Ogle that he can get there in the next six days. Um, Jason and Olympians is actually a really nice looking book. It um, is. Yeah. The story's interesting. Um, I really, we, the creator we're talking about is Jane Berryhill, who is, the writer and creator. Right. But um, the visuals are stunning. Uh, Rook is really excited. He's, he's added into the, the Kickstarter. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's, um, it's worth seeing. If, if you want to take a look, go to the Two Dimension blog, and we got all the information and the links to it. Yeah, the art, the art's really nice and the colouring is really nice and yes. we don't have any dialogue at this stage. Um, now, hopefully the, the team there can get that one up and running. And then the other one was the Bardic Verses, uh, which is an episode that I'm only partways through. Can you tell us a bit about it's Matthew Summer and Pete Collins? Yeah, that one surprised me. Um, the art style kind of looked like, you know, it's a, I would call a barbarian comic, which I loved. 
Um, it looked like some of the Conan magazines you used to see in uh, the 70s in the United States. Um, what they're following is basically, uh, they're both gamers. They play the role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. And it's about the bard. Um, which I never quite understood. Um, in the gaming, they always have a bard. He has a loot. Um, I always kind of looked at the guy as a medieval rock star. But they treat him as, um, well, in the book, the little bit I've read, all the warriors are always down on him. He's always getting pushed around. But they play a lot with styles. It starts out with um, the guy's own style, which, again, reminds me of the, the Conan books, the King Cole books in the 70s. But then they go in and they play around with um, at one part, they, he's basically following uh, Frank Miller's Sin City, the black and white hard crime book. Um, he switches. I remember they mentioned Rob Liefeld a lot, which was um, an American cartoonist with Image Comics, um, created the 90s look. And I haven't seen the rest, but there are some other styles that they played around with. Um, basically, the writer was saying he wanted to showcase the artist, all its different styles. Um, it looked quite good, but it was definitely a, a love letter to American comics. Um, I'm just looking here, here at some of the visuals that are on the internet and also on the uh, Two Dimension Comic Book Podcast website. And yeah, yeah really interesting. And have um, has talking to these uh, creators uh, about their creations um, made you want to bust out the Donmore star story, the Donmore story <laughs> in comic book? <laughs> Um, actually, my wife was talking about uh, my life has changed. I got some free time on my hands, and she goes, "Why don't Why don't you do a comic book again?" Um, and I am. I got the stuff out. I'm gonna try to finish something. My, the problem is, a lot of us like to draw and like to make things up, but it's different. You need a story. Uh, most mm -hmm. of us aren't really quite writers. You can make things up, but you don't have a structured story. Um, it has all the information to make people want to read the book and all the subplots and all the things that make it wonderful. I, I like to read, but I've never, I've never figured out the art of painting a story with words. So have you, yeah, uh, I, have you ever read American Splendor? Just, just a few times in trade magazines, just yeah, parts. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Did, did, you, did you like it? Yeah. I was, uh, the one I always remember, and at the time I read it, I said, why is he doing this? Hmm. It, it's a one-page thing, and he goes in his kitchen, and he pulls out um, a orange juice, uh, Minimade, in the United States. It's a little frozen container, opens it up, puts it in the pitcher, fills it up with water, stirs it, and drinks it, and that's the end of it. And I'm thinking, why would you do that? Well, they don't even make that anymore. Mm. They don't have frozen, you know, frozen concentrate orange juice. But basically, he was showing his life. And uh, I see now he's recording a time that has changed. But when I read it in the 80s, I thought, why is he doing this? Everybody does this. So, yeah, I liked it, but not at the time. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, well, uh, I knew nothing about it until the movie came out and uh, people said, you know, you've got to see this movie. And I acquiesced at some point and absolutely loved the movie. It was a fantastic movie. Um, it's probably one of my favourites. And, seen you know, it's particularly in the, you know, the non-action uh-huh. genre. Yeah, it's, um, although it has plenty of action, really. <laughs> it's just a different type of action. But I thought you've got your own Harvey P. Carr in, in the uh, two-dimension team in Al Val. <laughs> so if you wanna if you wanna do another American Splendor and and those comic books are, are so good. When I eventually caught up with the comic books, um I didn't know what to, oh, I knew what to expect, sort of, but I didn't expect them to be so good. They're very, very good, but I can only read a couple of stories at a time before I sort of need need to get back to guys in guys and girls in spandex. <laughs> You've been reading them in electronically, I think. Yes, yes, I. They're not in my budget uh, uh, to to buy and get over from America. There'd be very few of those in Australia. Now, how how do you are you enjoying reading them digitally? Uh, yeah, I think I, I told you a little while ago that I cracked I cracked open some sort of vessel in my brain where I'm I'm okay with it. And it probably goes in line with um, working a lot more on the computer in my work life, yeah. and and just being happy with the uh, more happy with the the desktop it's desktop computer experience. And um, and I don't I won't do I I won't do a tracking view that doesn't work for me. I just look at it as a page and just go you know left right left right. I wondered and, about that. Yeah, and that's um, the, I, I tried the tracking view. I mean, I must say it was quite a few years ago. Maybe I'd be better with it now, but um, I mean, I'm just calling it the tracking view. I don't know what it's really called, but uh, yeah, now I, I, I'm very happy uh, doing that now, and I can I can do it for uh, I can do it for a little while before I get ants in my pants and have to get up and do, and do something. But I guess I'm good for 30, 40 minutes. Certainly not an hour, but somewhere between thirty. <laughs> In yeah. 60 minutes. Yeah. The tracking view, the first time I ever saw that was when iPads first came out, and I found it staggering. Mm. Um, it is amazing, but to me, what the beauty of reading a comic was you control the time. Mm. I mean, the cartoonist will up to a point, but it's how you read it, and you know, sometimes you can go back, you, you say, I missed that, and you go back a couple pages, but you're the one that basically dictates the time, whereas if it's the tracking view, um, you don't. You're just, you know, following what they're doing. Um, I, when I've read, I've never used the tracking view. When I do, it's just to kind of thumb through the comic, and it's it's neat. But I've never actually read the books that way. Yeah, well, uh, I've been catching up with um, reading online has enabled me to catch up with even more Alan Moore and. Uh, <laughs> You what know. have you been uh, Well, I've got some of the physical swamp things, but I don't have them all. And so yeah. I've been catching up with his swamp thing run, and it's fantastic. Everything from Alan Moore is totally the yes. same and totally different at the same time. Yes. I mean, it's same in the fact that it's um, uh, unexpected 
and fantastic writing and different in the way that, you know, it, it's different subject matter. And um, so it's been great to catch up with that. I mean, obviously, I wasn't a, well, so few people are a Swamp Thing fan. <laughs> but, oh. uh, you know, you know um, it's, it's a really good story and really engaging. And then his Captain Britain run. Uh, yes. I mean, they're both from the 80s, really. So, um so uh, that that's 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 been a bit tougher. I'm not as invested in the character, um, but uh, it, it's still fantastic writing, and it's sucking me in, but just a bit bit more slowly. Do you know those two titles much? Yeah, uh, as a matter of fact, Captain Britain in the United States, you couldn't get work from other places. It was all American comics, mm. and um, the Captain Britain they put they teamed him up with Spider Man and. Marvel team up in two issues. Um, Chris Claremont and John Byrne did them. I absolutely loved it. Then um, they brought Captain Britain back in a black and white magazine in the 80s. Alan Davis was drawing it. Um, completely different look. I enjoyed those. And then I found out the Alan Moore run had just finished. By this time in the United States in the early 80s, Alan Moore was writing the Swamp Thing stories you're talking about. Swamp Thing was always a, a comic by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson. And when they tried to pick it up again with Thomas Shades and Marty Pascal, it was like, well, we'll try to do Swamp Thing, but the good times are over. You know, um, it was always harking back to the original source material, which was terrific. But Alan Moore completely changed it. When he came on, next thing you know, it's what everybody's talking about. It was one of the biggest books um, in the United States. Um, reading what he came up with, I was shocked uh, just how he he thinks differently than everybody else. He can certainly write and he can make you feel things, but he comes up with things that when you read it, you're thinking, why didn't anybody think of this before? It, it's so simple. Um, the Captain Britain stuff, I think, was some of the greatest. I That's the kind of stuff I like. Um, I know it's superhero, but it was more than that. It had a, it had a Lewis Carroll feel. And even though they were bright stories, they were also had a dark undercurrent. And um, it was so strong that when Alan Davis and other writers have taken it on, it continued on in that vein. He gave them enough resources to continue the thing all, you know, Alan Davis did Excalibur. It all ties in. It's one of my absolute favorite runs. Uh, the Swamp Thing stories are just surreal. Uh, fantastic and surreal. Um, my talking, favorite. Talking oh, about ahead. Excalibur, I was. Um, I uh, I had almost a full Excalibur run, and I decided to sell it, and I don't know I don't know why because I I, <laughs> I hadn't read it, but the one I hadn't read all of it, but the but the but the ones I'd read I enjoyed, and as I as I as I'm packing them up, putting in the box, and I'm like, why am I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, why am I doing this? I, I enjoyed I enjoyed this book, taped it up, uh, sent it away to its new owner, and thought that that, that was a dumb move. You probably agree um, with me. <laughs> no, um, actually, that's why we're friends. I did the same thing. I, I was really looking forward to Excalibur. I'm a huge Alan Davis fan. I like Chris Claremont, and I remember I'd buy those at the comic store. So excited! And by the time I got to, I think it was the third or fourth issue. All I thought was, this is too slow. Nothing's happening. 
Uh, it's just, you know, it is slow. Yeah. So I stopped. Now I see covers at the store and God, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have stopped. That looks great. But nevertheless, I did. And then um, eventually, Chris Claremont and Alan Davis had left. Other people were doing the book. And then at one point, I walked in the store and it said the return of you know who. It was Alan Davis. I picked him up. He was writing and drawing it. And it was staggering. It was absolutely staggering. It was moving. It was unique. It was funny. It was adventurous. Um, it was everything you'd want in a comic book like that. And so I started picking them up again, then started going to back issue bins, finding all the ones I missed. Um, for some reason with Claremont, it was, it was too slow. But when Alan Davis picked it up, and then it, it, it was kind of amazing. It ties into the Phoenix saga from X-Men. But it's like when I talk about how Alan Moore wrote, Alan Davis did the same thing. I did not see that coming. And um, how the Phoenix Force worked and all that, it was... I, I find genius. And, um, he finished it up, his run. Uh, the Phoenix storyline finished on Excalibur, I think, 50. He did some more, and then he left the book. But it tied up nicely, which is rare in American comics. Uh, and the book continued on, and other people did it, and it fizzled out. But to me, when Ella Davis you know, finished the book and left it, that to me was when it ended. But... um. Yeah, worth, worth getting electronically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, worth looking at electronically. And uh, Alan's Alan's awesome. Alan Davis, that is. And um, yeah, Chris Claremont, he's a fantastic writer. I mean, no one can deny. But I mean, he sometimes does you know ride that line between a bit a bit too wordy, and oh, yeah. um, obvious, obviously on that that one he had um, he had something specific to say. In the, uh, in the in the in the wordy front, and you know he said it. <laughs> he, I used to be staggered by his stories. Um, I always thought he was clever how he tied things in, how he came up with things, and um, he could take books that you didn't really think were that good and turn them into something beautiful. Um, I always loved him. Um, all the stuff he did with John Byrne, the Marvel team ups, uh, Iron Fist. Um, the Star-Lord one-shot. It was one of my favorites. But I continued to read the X-Men until the mid-'80s. And I guess what I was getting tired of was that every character, next thing you know, could speak 70 languages with some type of um, ninja, assassin, martial artist. They all started getting claw fingers. They were all a cyborg. They, they were all genius scientists. Um, there wasn't anybody that could just do a few things. They, they were all, he was throwing everything in the kitchen sink. He handled these plot lines that never finished. He just kept splintering off into more plot lines. Um, I do know that that's what kept a lot of people going back to that book. It was, it was huge, and it, it continued. Um, Dallas, who I do the show with, he started reading the X-Men when I stopped, him and Rook. Um, they're quite a bit younger than I am. But I stopped, but most of the world didn't. Um, there was a lot of things he would do that was just sometimes a bit too much, trying to do people's accents when you're reading a comic. Um, I found some people could do it. I didn't find he was good at it. Um, but yeah, I, his stories just seemed like a lot of plot lines that never seemed to ever wrap up, and it just got to be too much. But yeah, he could certainly write, and 
I used to think, and still do in some ways, he was one of the greatest writers comics ever had. Oh, Although definitely. he mm. lost the plot for me <laughs> later on. Oh, well, you're going you're gonna to do something for decades. You're going to um, yes. come in and out of favor with people and... Uh, and all that sort of thing. And so, you know, generally, how's the, how's the two-dimension crew going? Everyone happy? Yeah, everybody's doing good. Um, Dallas is wanting to come on the show, which makes me happy, but he's putting an album together by himself and an album together with his band. He's raising a daughter, you know, da-da-da-da-da. He's got a couple <laughs> hours. God. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, everybody's doing good, and... Um, we're getting ready to do another show this week with no guests. <laughs> That's fine. No guests is good. Guests is also good. Um, when I was last talking to Al a few weeks ago, I mentioned that um, uh, Al likes to grill the creators. Has he? Yeah. Has he been? Uh, on the little bit I heard of the last episode, he's he's been grilling again. Do, do you enjoy that? Do you feel as though you're good cop, he's bad cop? Because that's what I think. Oh, I didn't take it that way. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, Al, in the last episode, kind of stepped it up because Rook couldn't make it. And um, I think Al felt kind of bad because Rook is a role-playing guy. You know, he does. He's a dungeon master. Al and I are not. And I, I think he... What he told me later, he's trying to overcompensate. But if you listen to the episode, uh, the creators kept saying whenever Al would ask a question, man, that's an excellent question. Whereas I never got that. <laughs> so he was grilling, but it wasn't in a mean-spirited way. He was trying to, you know, find out, keep the information going. It seemed to me like they appreciated what he had said. I think you and Al are both sort of realising separately and together is that um, there's a little bit of money kicking around the comics book scene, you know, if you want to put a, a project together. It could, it could potentially happen. I mean, it could always potentially happen, but it could, um, it could really happen, but not totally on your dime. Is that, is that exciting? Imagine you guys bumping your head together in an Al and Don and, and Rook and, and even Dallas comic book. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? Al, Al has been published. Um, yeah, sure. And, you know, but that's I mean, how we met. A new one. Dal yeah. <laughs> and Dallas, is, um, he, has a, he has a comic book for sale, a, a and thick one. And, Mighty um, Blue, right? Yeah, the Mighty Blue. Yeah. Um, when I met Dallas, I... Um, I met Dallas at work, and I knew him for about a year. I never knew that he um, liked comics. We always talked about music. He was a guitar player. And um, once he found out, you know, I was showing him my projects, and Dallas must have brought in about 15 projects he was doing. Um, one of my favorites was two young guys that were video game guys, and when he would draw them, they were always on the couch, and it looked like they were one with the couch, like they kind of melted in it. Um, and one of them was a vampire. <laughs> cool. And uh, I, I said, where are you coming with this? Why are you doing it? I don't know. I just thought it'd be funny. Um, the Mighty Blue, his story, I said, you've done more pages in this than I've done in my entire life. Um, when he sets his mind to it, he gets it done. Um, I love comics. I like to draw. But I also find that 
trying to do the comics the way I do them, it's, it's excruciating pain. It's just a lot of, it's like trying to push a refrigerator up, up, uphill on its side with no, no dolly. Mm. Um, do you find I'm you actually, have to have to call in, get, get extra raises, make sure that you're <laughs> stocked up? <laughs> well, I think if I actually had a, a story structure, it'd be different. But uh, well, yeah, but the, anyway, yeah, we're all doing stuff. Um, Al draws all the time, but he doesn't. He keeps it to himself. So you know. I can tell you who's who's the hero of his story would be. You know, you make you make Rook the hero because he's quite a heroic figure, <laughs> yeah. and I think it, he could be a hero. And you, I think he'd be the ginger avenger. The Ginger Avenger or um, the Red Rage, something like that. I, these, I always say particularly this. angry. <laughs> I always say this. If Rook wasn't in the, the city he was living in, that place would dry up and blow away. Uh, Rook pulls people together. He's involved in everything. He's doing everything. And just, I don't know, he's got a big heart and his people seem to flock around him, but he's always got... He's always got multiple projects, but he never seems like he's busy. <laughs> ah, that's good. Well, look, we should let you go, Don, and have a rest of a day and uh, e enjoy your retirement. Um, you've never looked better. <laughs> now you haven't. You haven't. Health hasn't fallen apart. There's no massive weight gain or anything yet. Well. I I hate to admit it, but Rook pointed something out. And I said, yeah, it's, it's happening. My belly's gotten a little bigger. I, uh -oh. I exercise, but, you know, it's just, it's, um, I'm not used to having all the free time, and it's, it's nice. That's all right. I feel as though, I feel as though you, you, you're 90% adjusted and maybe just got 10% left to go, do you think, <laughs> being retired? Yeah, it's still... It's still strange to say, but. All right. Well, Don, we'll, uh, we'll log off and we'll encourage people to, to listen to the Two Dimension Comic Book Podcast because it's excellent, right? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a fun time, wasn't it? Two excellent people to chat to also. Big thanks goes out to Tim Ferguson and, of course, Don Moore. Follow Tim and Don on the socials if you want a good time, and if you want as equally good time, follow us, as we're constantly putting out interesting and funny stuff. Thank you for listening. That's about it from me this week. We'll catch you next time on The Dan Show on Slice Radio, and stay safe.